Welcome to Traveling Culturati, where we explore cultures and share travel news, travel tips, destinations, and travel chats. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Well, hey there, fellow Culturati, Javon Harley here. Your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati, I want to thank you for coming back for another week of travel tips, travel chats, travel news, and travel topics. Yes, all things travel. Thank you so much for joining me for another week. Well, have you joined our travel club? Well, here's why you should. You'll be the first to know when we're on the go. You get to be part of a fantastic travel group and to go to some wonderful destinations around the world. Just head on over to TravelingCulturati.com. Go ahead and join in the fun. We have some wonderful destinations coming up for 23 and we're working on 24 already. And we have an awesome show for you today. Heading to Charleston, South Carolina, a destination that is filled with history, culture, cuisine, and it is significant to the beginnings of the United States of America. We're going to have special guests on with us from Explore Charleston, Charleston's tourism board, and someone with a very special talent from the Gullah Geechee culture. We'll also have Javon's Travel Minute and the Culture Report. But right now, I've got some travel news. If you're planning to travel to Mexico and are looking forward to rideshare options to get around, you might want to reconsider that or at least check with the hotel concierge for some alternatives. The U.S. State Department has just issued a warning to U.S. travelers heading over to some of Mexico's most visited spots. Following the recent conflicts between taxi drivers and rideshare companies like Uber, the U.S. is advising tourists planning to travel to Cancun and the Mexican state of Quintana Roo to exercise caution in their travels and refrain from using app-based transportation services like Uber for now. Now, according to the recent developments, taxi drivers have been reportedly attacking rideshare drivers in protest of policy changes impacting the industry. Earlier in January, a new court ruling allowed Uber to remain active in Quintana Roo without needing a public transportation license. Back in 2021, the Mexican Supreme Court had established that the company is not, in fact, a public transportation company, and therefore it isn't subject to the same regulations as taxi drivers. This results in a cost disparity because taxi drivers are instead considered public transportation and it means that they have to pay higher costs. For this reason, taxi drivers are extremely enraged and they're taking it out on Uber drivers causing conflict on the streets. Unfortunately, some passengers have been caught in the middle of the action and some U.S. citizens have reportedly been injured. In its warning, the U.S. Embassy and consulates in Mexico advise travelers to review their personal security plans, be aware of their surroundings, and maintain a low profile to monitor local media for updates and to call 911 in Mexico if they require immediate assistance. In a recent article in Travel and Leisure magazine, three flight attendants were interviewed and they listed three things you should never eat or drink on a plane. So if you're a frequent flyer, you know flight attendants not only have a tough job, but they're certainly well abreast of what 
should and shouldn't occur on board, and that's including your food and drink. At the top of the list is tap water. Now you may be thinking when I get on the plane, I'm always offered water and they pull out a bottle of water, whether it's spring water or purified water. But this may not be the case, especially if you're drinking coffee or tea. So you wanna make sure that it is bottled water that you're drinking. You never wanna drink the tap water. And so if you go to the restroom on yourself, that is not potable water. You cannot drink that. So you wanna make sure again that you are drinking only bottled water, including for coffee and tea. And you may wanna reconsider that ice because that ice may be used with that same tap water. And the reason is that the tap water comes from a reservoir and there are implications that those reservoirs or tanks may not be cleaned as often as they should be cleaned and no amount of hot water can kill some of the bacteria that grows in those airplane water tanks. If you want hot coffee or tea, you may just want to bring it on board with you. Yeah, you may just want to do that. Gas-inducing foods. We all think about beans, right? Red meat, things like that. But don't forget about those cruciferous vegetables. <laughs> That's a funny word, I know. But cruciferous vegetables are those that are gas-inducing vegetables as well. So in addition to the beans, raw salad sometimes will do that broccoli, kale. So you want to steer clear of carbonated drinks as well. That can lead to an upset stomach in the air and also cause bloating, which in turn is also gas inducing. Bloody Marys. Now, you know, I used to always get a Bloody Mary on board. I don't anymore, but I used to. And one of the reasons that they advise against the Bloody Mary is because it's always made with the Mr. and Mrs. T Bloody Mary mix and tomato juice, and it's very high in sodium, which is not very good at a high altitude. And because of that, you really have to drink so much more water to help neutralize that sodium, and it can become dehydrating. So especially if you're on long flights, you should really refrain from anything that is going to be dehydrating. So thank you, flight attendants, for those tips. The International African American Museum in Charleston, South Carolina is much anticipated, but we're just going to have to wait a little bit longer because just 30 days before its expected opening in January of 23, they announced that they would have to delay. Yes, the International African American Museum in Charleston, South Carolina has building issues that will delay the eagerly awaited center's opening until later 2023, according to the museum's leaders. The leaders said that the January opening was postponed because of faulty humidity and temperature controls that are required to protect its exhibits and artifacts. The International African American Museum is at the former Gadsden Wharf, once a large port where nearly half of all enslaved Africans arrived. Remnants of the wooden wharf were found by archaeologists in 2014 during an exploration dig for the museum site. In a letter to donors, the museum's president and chief executive, Tony Matthews, said, We regret this turn of events and any inconvenience to our loyal members. We foreground the responsibility to ensure the highest standard of safety and preservation of our most sensitive objects, art, and artifacts. 
that honor the journey of our ancestors and tell the critical stories of our nation's history. Officials had planned the museum's opening for the weekend of January 21st, after Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. However, they now expect the inauguration ceremony to occur sometime within the first six months of 2023. The delay was the latest in a series of postponements and have been bedeviled by the museum since the $120 million project was first proposed more than 20 years ago. The architect, Henry N. Cobb, worked with the landscape designer, Walter Hood, and the exhibitions designer, Ralph Applebaum, to fill the 100,000 square foot space with nine galleries, a genealogy center for visitors researching their own ancestries, and a memorial garden with a tidal pool. There had been recent signs of trouble with finishing the museum. In April, leaders asked the city of Charleston for an extra few million dollars to account for unseen challenges in finishing the center. Officials blamed supply chain issues and other construction costs like roof repairs, design changes, and extra insurance. We broke ground in the fall of 2019, and then we hit the very trying period of COVID according to Matthews in a recent interview. We were a bit hampered, but we did continue to plow through. During an interview with a local news channel, the museum's chairman, Wilbur Johnson, said the board knew of the climate issues inside the building for a while and had been working to resolve them. They were not fully resolved, and he added that he considered the institution's role in telling history to be a sacred obligation. Matthews said that the museum's officials are using the delay to refine a special exhibition which has not been announced. The museum is also waiting for some artworks to be complete in its program, which has a permanent collection of nearly 300 works of art and historical artifacts telling the story of African Americans. This includes poetry by the enslaved artist David Drake, images from the Malian photographer Seydou Keita, and an original copy of Things Fall Apart, the 1958 novel by Chinua Achebe. Visitors will also encounter Seeking, a short video by the filmmaker Julie Dash that uses the coming-of-age traditions of the Gullah Geechee, descendants of West Africans, brought to the American southeastern coast to describe a narrative of resilience. Well, it is February, and that means Black History Month, one of my favorite months of the year. The story of Black history begins in 1915. At this time, scholar Carter G. Woodson founded what today is called the Association for the Study of African American Life and History. He would later become known as the father of Black history. Woodson was born to formerly enslaved parents in 1875. His formal academic career began with a bachelor's degree from Kentucky's Berea College, followed by his second bachelor's and a master's from the University of Chicago. Finally, he earned his PhD in history from Harvard University in 1912, making him only the second black American after W.E.B. Du Bois to achieve this feat. Throughout his studies, Woodson found that textbooks and teachers alike largely failed to acknowledge the achievements of African Americans. Fast forward nearly a decade after he formed the Association of the Study of Negro Life and History, the historic figure wanted to do more. In 1924, 
With the help of Woodson's fraternity brothers of Omega Psi Phi, the Negro History and Literature Week was created. It soon evolved to Negro Achievement Week and then, in 1926, became known as Negro History Week. The observance sought to honor and educate the public about the accomplishments of black people. Woodson is said to have chosen mid-February because both President Abraham Lincoln and abolitionist Frederick Douglass, two figures who played a huge role in shaping black history, were born during the same week. The main reason was that Americans were already honoring Lincoln during that week since his assassination in 1865 and, as of Douglass's death in the late 1890s, black communities had begun to pay tribute to him during the same time. Momentum grew across the country with each passing year and by the 1960s, a week had turned into a month-long celebration annually. In 1976, Gerald Ford became the first president to officially recognize Black History Month. And nearly half a century later, you can observe the occasion all over the United States in cities brimming with Black history. Stay tuned. Yes, we're eyeing Nashville as one of our stops on the Black History Tour Trail. Yay! <laughs> well, that's all I've got for travel news. And when I come back, we'll have Javon's Travel Minute. And we're going to Charleston. And in honor of Black History Month, we will be talking about the Black history of Charleston, South Carolina, and the Gullah Geechee culture. So stay tuned for that. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you visit the website, TravelingCulturati.com, connect with me on social media, and don't forget to join that travel club. And now, Javon's Travel Minute. Well, Black History Month is underway, and while there are so many things to celebrate during the month, I make it a priority to honor and support Black history, its attractions, sites, and businesses whenever and wherever possible when I travel. Sure, it'll take an extra effort, but it's well worth it. And by supporting these sites and businesses, we keep them in business. Museums and sites need donations and visitation to keep them alive. And without them, the story and its history fades and gets less attention. Whenever we're visiting a destination, Contact the local tourism authority and ask for its Black History Trail, its sites and attractions. Ask if they have a designated Equity, Diversity and Inclusion Division or initiative. Search the National Park Services, as many historic sites are located and managed by them. Eat Okra is a great app that provides a guide to Black-owned restaurants and eateries. Use social media and follow groups that focus on the Black traveler, like Traveling While Black. There are many Black history sites, attractions, and businesses. We just have to remember that they exist year-round, and they need our attention before, during, and after Black history. This is Javon, and that was your Travel Minute.
Well, we're heading to Charleston, folks. That's right. A destination that is filled with history, culture, cuisine, and is significant to the beginnings of the United States of America. There's some exciting and new things happening in Charleston, and I'm sharing them with you today with special guests from Explore Charleston. We'll also have the International Museum of African American History, and we're going to talk a little bit about the Gullah culture. So joining me today is Courtney Jones, Assistant Director of Membership and Media Relations for Explore Charleston. And a bit later, we're going to have Corey Alston representing the Gullah community. Well, hello, Courtney, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Hello, hello. So good to be here with you today, Devon. Yes, and I'm excited to be talking about Charleston. (laughs) I love that you're excited about talking about Charleston. One thing I noticed looking at your website, Lonely Planet named Charleston the best city for history, and Condé Nast Traveler named Charleston the number one destination in the United States. So let's start with the history. What makes it the best city for history? You know, it's funny because at Explore Charleston, our tagline is history loves company. And there's so much history. You could spend a week and a half in Charleston and still not even get a tip of the iceberg. A lot of times when I tell people that are coming to visit, you really have to focus on one or two things and then make time to come back because that's just the city that Charleston is. As far as the history goes, to your point, what you were saying earlier, we are basically one of the very first cities that started in the United States. At one point in time, we were the richest city in the United States due to the efforts of the enslaved Africans that were brought through Gadsden's Wharf, which is estimated that about 48 to 50 percent of African-Americans in this country can trace their ancestry back to coming through Gadsden's Wharf. So you couple that with the history of the cuisine that we have here that lots of people are starting to kind of dabble into, and it just becomes a place that you just fall in love with. You can't help it. It's a lot of good stuff to look at. And I'm so glad that you gave the piece of history that you gave, because we have to start being very inclusive with our history and talking about all the parts of the fabric. And African-American history is certainly woven into the fabric of the history of America. And yes, I will tell you, because I've been to Charleston before, and you have to go back again and again and again, because there's always going to be something else that you want to see and do. (laughs) Exactly. And there's always more to learn. I am what many consider in Charleston, you have your camas and you have your benyas. And I am considering myself a benya because I've been here for quite some time now. My dad was actually born and raised in Charleston. And even the Kamyas and even the Binyas, we haven't been able to, again, just even get a tip of what the amount of history is that we have here that dates back to the Revolutionary War. Before that, everybody loves Hamilton, (laughs) John Lawrence from Hamilton. His family is actually buried in the North area, just on the outskirts of Charleston. So, I mean, there's all kinds of pop culture stuff that comes back to the history of the city that we have. And of course, the number one cash crop that made Charleston the number one and richest city at one point in time was rice. We call it Carolina gold here because that's exactly what it was. 
And, you know, when you start to really dive into the history of a city like ours, and you dive into the complicated history of African-Americans, as a whole, African-American history is American history. Many of the structures that we have in Charleston were built on the backs of enslaved Africans. The way that the city is laid out, a lot of those things have to do with and go back to the plantations and the ways that things were set up in the city from the beginnings. So you really can just walk the streets and feel the history emanating from any which direction and no matter where you are. It's pretty special. Absolutely. Now, the second part of that was that Condé Nast traveler named Charleston the number one destination in the United States. What makes it so? I think Charleston's charm. Charleston will charm you to death. That is one thing (laughs) that we laugh about all the time here at Explore Charleston. Because believe it or not, Lonely Planet named us the best city. Condé Nast Traveler named us the number one city. And also Travel and Leisure. We've been Travel and Leisure's number one city for nine years in a row. So, you know, when people vote, they're voting on the history and culture. They're voting on the cuisine. They're voting on the community. They're voting on just things to see, do, tours, attractions, and just the amount of everything that Charleston has to give. It's a place where, again, you can get a good meal. You can get a great dose of history. You can touch things that are hundreds of years old. It just charms you in every which way that it possibly can. And Charleston is just such a unique place. The weather is gorgeous. We've got beaches. It's one of those things when people tell me that they've never been to Charleston, I just always explain that it's something that you got to do more than once. Because like we were saying earlier, there's definitely something that you're going to miss and something that you're going to want to come back for. Absolutely. And one of those things is definitely food. And so many come for the food. I'm one of them. Yay. <laughs> I, I love to eat my way through a destination. <laughs> we are soul sisters on that one then. <laughs> well, food tells you so much about a place, about a culture, about the people. So what is Charleston's cuisine and culinary scene? Charleston's culinary scene has absolutely exploded. Even visiting other destinations, I have had other people tell me that Charleston is quote unquote food mecca because you've got as much seafood as you can imagine. It's some of the freshest seafood that you'll ever have in your life because we do have oysters and we've got shrimp that comes straight off the docks in Shim Creek and you can have any kind of cuisine that you'd ever imagine. We have fine dining. We've got the spots where you've got paper towels and paper plate. So, you know, we can go from a Hall's Chop House bison steak to lima beans and rice at Bertha's. It just runs the gamut of anything that you could ever think about. And a lot of our culinary masterminds that we have here, as I was explaining earlier, are starting to really look back into the history of the cuisine. So we're tying in the history of Charleston and telling a story through food. And as much as I love a story being read to me or me reading one, I can't say that I'm going to turn down a story that's being told to me via food. (laughs) (laughs) That is certainly true. And, you know, when it's told well, you can just taste the history and the culture that's part of it Uh, and the hands behind it. You know, we can't really forget about the hands behind it. So what are the things that you have to taste and try when you come to Charleston? For Charleston, again, we're a seafood city. So if you are a fan of oysters, you got to find a spot that's going to have oysters. 
either on a raw bar or some fried oysters or however you want to do it. I certainly will say oysters are number one. Number two, I'm a huge fan of the crab and shrimp rice at Hannibal's. Hannibal's is a restaurant that has been in downtown Charleston since the 80s. And there are another ones that are going to serve you some turkey wings with rice and just some good down-home soul food. But if you are a seafood fan, Charleston is the spot for you, definitely. And then, like I said, we've got steaks to die for as well. There are three restaurants here at the top of my mind that are amazing steakhouses, including Hall's Chop House, who at one point in time was the number four restaurant in the United States, the number four steakhouse in the United States. And a lot of times people will come for the experience. A lot of the steakhouses that we have here, including Grill 225, they take it back old school and you can get a Bananas Foster made at your table. And how many times can one say that they've had Bananas Foster made at their table? So there's just so many different directions that you can go in just for good food. And honestly, I laugh all the time. My dad was born and raised here, but we laugh together because there aren't a lot of chain restaurants in Charleston because they don't really make it. There's just too many good local spots that everybody wants to check out and try. And I'm a fan of all food. I will try anything at any given point in time. And Charleston is a good spot to come and try different things for sure. Yes. And Bananas Fosters, by the way, was created in Charleston. Hey, I didn't know you knew that. (laughs) I see. I did know that. And I was lucky enough having brunch at Brennan's and the chef was there and visited our table and signed one of his cookbooks for me. How about that? Yes. (laughs) And I would be remiss if I did not mention the barbecue. We've got any kind of barbecue you can imagine here. Two of my favorites are going to include Rodney Scott's Whole Hog Barbecue as well as Lewis Barbecue. They're both very different, but they're both very, very good. So Uh, any kind of barbecue in Charleston you can find is also never a bad thing. Well, it never is. And, you know, with the United States, barbecue means different things to different regions. <laughs> so Very whether it's a vinegar so. base, a tomato base, a dry rub. So, yes, <laughs> U.S. is about the barbecue. But depending on where you are, you're going to get a different flavor of it. Amen. That's how it works. <laughs> <laughs> now, I love a good walking city because who wants to be bothered with parking a car and doing all of those things? But Charleston is one of those cities, I think. Is there a particular area that is best for walking? How do we navigate the city? So Charleston is a peninsula. So we've got water surrounding us on three sides. And so a lot of times when I speak about Charleston, I'm speaking about Charleston, the region but I'm also mainly talking about the peninsula. And for a visitor, anybody that's coming into town, you're down for a good walk in Charleston for sure. We've got lovely parks, we've got lovely locations, and really King Street is kind of the shopping hub for the peninsula itself. And it's just about two miles. I had someone ask me one time how long King Street is, and I was like, you know what? That is a great question. I have no clue, Um, but I have walked it (laughs) from beginning all the way down to Broad Street before. And then from there, you can walk around to the Battery. The scenery is just amazing. Again, we're just big enough, but just small enough. So it doesn't feel overly crowded, but definitely put on your walking shoes and come and take a look at all the scenery. And like I was saying earlier, the weather here, you can't beat it. Today is cold. Um, (laughs) It's cold for Charleston. 
we're at like 52 degrees and we don't do that. But <laughs> last week, two weeks ago, we were at 70 degrees. So you never know what you're going to get. And Charleston is an extremely, extremely walkable city. It's wonderful to get lost down an alleyway anywhere on the peninsula. And just, again, you feel history as you walk it. It's kind of cool. You certainly do. And I always say that you can just find those really special items are in the nooks and crannies of places that you only see when you go out for a walk that you may miss otherwise. Exactly. And now it's so much easier, right? You don't have to actually have a paper map. We have this lovely Google maps that will direct us any direction that we need to go. But even if you come in and get lost, that's not a bad thing either. I love getting lost in a good city. Yes. Well, certainly technology has helped us a lot in the travel and tourism industry with getting around. (laughs) And I really do appreciate it. (laughs) Uh, Same here. (laughs) Now, for first time visitors, what would be the things to see and do for that first time visitor? Well, for that first time visitor on ExploreCharleston.com, we actually have itineraries curated for first time visitors for different things to see and do. For me personally, whenever I've got somebody coming into town, I always want to, of course, experience the history. So first and foremost, I would suggest visiting McLeod Plantation. That is one of the four that we have here in Charleston that constantly keeps me learning. We also have Magnolia, McLeod, Middleton Plantation, and then Boone Hall as well. Boone Hall is the one for all of our movie buffs, because if you recall the movie The Notebook, it was filmed here in Charleston. And the big house, or Allie's house in that movie, is actually the house from Boone Hall Plantation. So always telling people to definitely take a step back into the history to learn about what plantation life looked like for the enslaved, as well as those that were not just working on the plantation, but also living there. So taking a step back into history is always a good thing. Second thing I would suggest, definitely we have an amazing burgeoning culture of artisans, artists, and makers here in Charleston. Definitely hit up the Charleston City Market. There are so many different types of crafts and artwork that you can find there, including my friend Corey Alston, who you'll speak to in a little bit, but he has a booth at the Charleston City Market. And sells a lot of his art there. And it's just an incredible place. It doesn't take you long. You'll find kind of any and everything that's really indigenous to Charleston for you to take back to anybody that you love or keep for yourself. And then third, I would definitely say going to the Battery. So the Battery in Charleston, and of course, Rainbow Row is included in that. Rainbow Row is kind of the symbol of Charleston. You can kind of see it everywhere. It's just a row of very colorful houses, but it's for the younger folks is very Instagrammable and people love it. But I'll also tell you to go down to the battery. You're able to see these incredible antebellum homes. And again, with incredible views, the views from the battery are amazing. And again, it's a nice place to just kind of walk around and where you can, again, feel some more of that history in Charleston. So those would be the top three things that I say to do. And those are all wonderful things. I've done some of them, not all of them. And I can certainly concur that those are some of the great things to see and do among some of those other things that you'll find. And one of my other, if I can, at the market is Jonathan Green artwork is just fabulous. And, you know, if you don't want to spend the big bucks for the artwork, they have some very affordable things there too. But also I like to get their gift cards there um, because you always get a story when you're sending someone a card out to them, but another piece of history in Charleston. 
Yeah, that's actually a great idea. And it definitely helps out the local vendors here with that as well. So I'm a huge Jonathan Green art fan. I don't have the big bucks, but I have bought (laughs) several (laughs) of his pieces from the Charleston City Market, which is a wonderful alternative to going to his studio and purchasing something. Yes. Now, I'm excited about the new museum that's opening, the International African American Museum. And we're going to be chatting with them today. But what else do you have that's new and exciting that's happening in Charleston coming up? You know, our crown jewel right now is going to be the International African American Museum. It has been a dream for years in the making. So we're very excited about that. We actually have different new tours, I should say, that are focusing on African American history. Of course, unfortunately, with the murder of George Floyd, it came a lot of need for more inclusion and more people just wanting to know the raw history and the raw truth. And so there are lots of different tour companies we have here in Charleston that are focusing on the African-American experience that's coming up. And then, of course, like we were talking about earlier, Charleston is food mecca. So we've got lots of new restaurants and new spots that are going to be opening up soon as well. So really, each visit that you have to Charleston can be very different from the first. One of the cool excursions that's been able to kind of skyrocket to the top of people's lists, believe it or not, is casual crabbing with Tia. I did it probably about three months ago, and it was probably the most fun I've ever had. And I am not an outdoorsy girl at all, but Tia's story is just incredible. She really loves being out on the water and teaching you about the water. She didn't have a relationship with the water. She's a Benya born and raised in Charleston and didn't even really see or go to the beach until she was like 18 years old. So she created this entire experience to help people learn how to crab. She shows you how to throw a cast net. She shows you how to crab with a string and (laughs) a net. And then of course, just the actual crab baskets that we throw in the water as well. But it's just a really fun experience. And she's kind of exploded onto the scene within the last year. And I definitely would say that that's something that people can do. And is while it's a two and a half hour excursion, it certainly doesn't feel like two and a half hours. And you'll definitely enjoy yourself. The other thing I would suggest is as we kind of go into this new realm of green living, right? Like being recyclable and things like that. The Low Country Oyster Co-op is another one that actually helps to revitalize oyster reefs. As much as we take out, we try to put as much as we can back in. Anything that you can do centered around water in Charleston is always something that I would suggest. We've got kayaking tours where you can see dolphins, We've also got tours that are from boats where you can see dolphins, which I don't know about you, but I jump for joy every time I see a dolphin because I feel like it's a rare sighting. (laughs) (laughs) But lots of just cool and fun things to be able to do in the area. And we certainly have more than you can imagine, really. And then kind of encompassing that with the opening of the museum, you can make an entire vacation out of it. Oh, all sounds extremely wonderful. And a couple of years ago, I had Tia on talking about her experience, casual crabbing with Tia. Yes, we did have her on about a year and a half ago. I love that. (laughs) She has really exploded within the last year. And I'm super excited for her and happy for her. She just had a shout out in town and country magazine. So we're really excited to be able to have her here and have her as someplace that we can point 
people to go and have great and curated experiences here in Charleston. Yes. I found her because I have a childhood experience with crabbing being originally from the Washington, D.C., Maryland area. So the two states kind of share that crabbing experience. Haven't done crabbing with Tia, <laughs> but <laughs> I did with my dad <laughs> in I Maryland. <laughs> I'm here yet. Yeah, see, I'm one of those ones. Like I said, I'm not an outdoorsy girl. I had never done it, and I just had way too much fun. My nieces are obsessed with it and ask me if we can go every single weekend. And it sounds like talking to Tia and listening to your experience, it sounds like a wonderful experience. So I think whether you've done it somewhere else or not, it's still a great experience that you may want to have there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Charleston's ready for whoever wants to come visit. Come on. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. And we're excited and ready to come and especially to learn more about the Gullah culture. And thank you so much for bringing Corey Alston on with you as well today, because that really does help connect the dots. Culture is forever changing and reflecting what's happening in the society and with its people. It can be born of the arts, music, food, and sometimes politics and strife. This is the Culture Report. We have Corey Alston, who is a sweetgrass basket weaver in Charleston, South Carolina. Hello, Corey, and welcome to the program. Hello, how you doing? Thanks for having me. I am doing great. Thank you for being here because I've visited the stall at the market in Charleston, but never really stopped to get the full history and experience of sweet grass basket weaving. So what does it mean to be Gullah? To be Gullah would be more sustaining historical culture by language, foods, arts and crafts, living traditions by hunting, fishing, gardening, coming together with your neighbor, becoming one, sharing, embracing each other. I mean, culture for a Charlestonian, Gullah Geechee heritage culture, we stretch from Jacksonville, Florida, all the way up to Jacksonville, North Carolina. We're a coastal community, about one county inland from the ocean. And so as we speak of our culture, our lifestyle, and our ways of living, We also are speaking about those in Savannah and those in Brunswick, Georgia, and those in Little River, South Carolina, and those in Wilmington, North Carolina. They're all our family based off of the lifestyle that our ancestors lived from that time of enslavement. Gullah is a English African-based lifestyle. We are the cousins of Cape Verdeans. We are the cousins of those from the Bayou, those Creole. We are the cousins of those from the Caribbean, speaking the Patois lifestyle. And the reason is because we are the ancestors of Africans, all four of those cultures, enslaved by a nationality of English, Spanish, Portuguese, or French. So that's why we all consider ourselves close cousins based off of being enslaved people here in America. And how is the Gullah culture represented today? Because today it's always a struggle to pass down the culture and the traditions and the history, right? Keeping young people interested. So how is it being represented today? I say one of the biggest ways is being represented as the way it was Courtney was telling you is within our cuisine. Our foods of our area, even if you're not cultural, you're still cooking off of the recipes from those 
binyas. What that means as we use that word so friendly is a binya is someone that was born here generationally after days of enslavement and they've lived here, they've thrived, they've continued that lifestyle. And akamya, these are Gullah words, by the way. Akamya is a person that chose to move into the area, make Charleston now their new homes. So those native Charlestonians, generationally, we would pick those that may have just moved in here because they created a part of our traffic issue. And it's fun. It's really no harm. It's not really no one being blatantly ugly to a person that's moved here. It's just a friendly joke of native people of the area and non-native people of the area. But one of the best ways of seeing Gullah folk would be within our cuisine. Then also we have the art form that I'm involved in, sweetgrass basket weaving, you will then also hear, as you pass through the areas, you'll hear a dialect that sounds very rhythmic. That rhythmic sound is our Gullah dialect. It is our native, nationally accredited language. Then you will also see our culture within our tourism, as far as the tours, uh, bus tours, walking tours. You can get a museum, one-mile museum walk tour from the visitor center, a guide of guiding yourself through the city. You can't come to Charleston without touching the culture. Just want to put it out there like that. When I come back, I'm going to continue my conversation with Corey Alston. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Head on over to the website, travelingculturati.com. And don't forget to join that travel club. We have Corey Alston, who is a sweetgrass basket weaver in Charleston, South Carolina. Hello, Corey, and welcome to the program. Hello, how you doing? Thanks for having me. What is the history of sweetgrass basket weaving, the material that's used as well as the weaving process itself? So the materials are used were found here by the enslaved during that era of rice cultivation. The enslavers enslaved these Africans to make rice the number one cash crop. And it did. It made Charleston the richest city prior to enslaved Africans becoming the workforce for this number one cash crop, I cannot miss and not speak of the original enslaved people that were brought into the Carolinas of the early 16, mid 16, late 1600s. And they are from Barbados. We have a major, major connection with our Caribbean brethren. And it's because of those enslaved people brought into the Carolinas living in an area that we heard now as a Charlestown Landing. They lived there for up to 15 years, trying different crops, trying to see if it would work, planting cotton, planting sugarcane, trying to plant rice. It did not work. It was a failure because these were Barbadian enslaved people that lived in Charleston as enslaved people for generations. That's when they realized that there was a thriving culture of people on the West Coast of Africa that use rice for trading and bartering, that use rice for eating substance. They then chose to enslave them people. They are my ancestors. Bring them back, have them as rice cultivators, 
when they are not only cultivating, drying, and growing the raw rices, they also made a basket that would help sift the rice that threw the shaft off or husk was able to throw off. And that's now what we know today as a sweetgrass basket. The sweetgrass basket pattern that we make so often based on the legacy, the lifestyle of the history of what our great grandparents would have woven is a flatter plate style basket known as a rice fanner. The rice fanner was used for tossing dried rice grains in the air. And as you did that, the shaft or the husk would have blown away. This tool that we use, a part of my culture, would have been the same tool that most ethnic cultures would have used all over the world based off of what they were growing. If they were growing coffee beans or seed pods or panning for gold or growing rices of those Asian countries, it's the same style basket. It was just a basket used by the enslaved on the West Coast of Africa. It's a very large plate for those that are listening to want to get a visual of what it looks like. As the enslaved were brought into the Carolinas, they found similar grasses. We use four material. Our materials are harvested, laid to sun dry. Then we can weave with them. The main material is a, has a sweeter smell. It reminds me of a broom straw. It's the same color of broom straw. It smells like hay. We call it sweet grass. It's a marsh material that we harvest at low tide. We lay it to dry. We have another marsh material that's biblical. Baby Moses is found in it. It's a darker brown material known as bulrush. We harvest it when it's green. We lay it to sun dry. From pine needles, we use a longleaf pine needle. We don't use the loblolly. Loblolly is too short. So the longleaf pine needle is what gives us red coloring. It also gives us the knots that we tie the baskets with. And then our state tree of Carolina, the palmetto, is what our threading is. That's another biblical material. If we can think of why we have a Palm Sunday, it's because of Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem. And he was first greeted by putting palms on the ground and he walked on it as a first form of red carpet treatment. So what I'm getting at is all the materials we use is nothing new about them. It's an old material. Two of them are biblical. We're still using the same material, the same weaving pattern. We're making with the same knot. We're pulling it just as tight as our ancestors did. We're just a younger generation proud to keep this skill alive because our ancestors paved the way for us. What a phenomenal history. You gave me so much information that I didn't even know about, like the connection with Barbados. Had no idea whatsoever. And then just learning about all the natural products and the country or maybe even the world itself is losing touch so much with handcrafted items. So that too gives me such pride and excitement about the sweetgrass baskets and the tradition and skill of basket weaving. So how did you get started with basket weaving? So me personally, as I was a later teen, I would say I was about 18, 19. So let me give you a little more backstory. I'm from Mount Pleasant of six generations. So Mount Pleasant is a little north of Charleston. As you cross over the Cooper River, it's a small town, predominantly all black until the mid to late 80s. As we Benyas, we always like to say that if it wasn't for Hurricane Hugo in 89, I don't think Charleston would have been put on the map as much as it was. So it kind of brought an attention to us. It brought that we lived on the coast. We lived on the beach. And so that would help brought tourists in. And once they started visiting, they stopped visiting and moved in, <laughs> made it home. And so that say that is because 
As my family were enslaved in the Mount Pleasant area, so was my girlfriend of the time. We were both families of Mount Pleasant, but of different plantations based on the enslavers. So my girlfriend of the time, now she's my wife of 21 years, her family were enslaved in the Boone Hall area. My family was enslaved off of the Long Point Road, close to the Ports Authority. If you know the Mount Pleasant area, then people would understand exactly what I'm talking about geographically. So as we had two different backgrounds of coming up, my family were not rice cultivators. They were more brick masons or blacksmiths. My wife's family was more rice cultivators. And so time moved forward. We're going to move all the way up into the 2000, 99 to be exact, is when I met her. And so her grandmother was the matriarch. She was the most well-known basket maker of Mount Pleasant. Well, let me give you a little more of that. Mount Pleasant is one of the only cities that has kept this sweetgrass basket lifestyle alive for over 300 years. That's not saying that our other sea islands did not make baskets. That's just saying Mount Pleasant has been known for keeping it alive the longest. Her grandmother wove sweetgrass baskets until the age of 98. She was the first Smithsonian representative for Gullah Heritage on basket weaving back in 1984. What made it so cool is because her grandmother knew me when I was a little toddler. My father would bring me around the communities as he had an insurance route. He was an insurance agent. And her grandmother remembered me as a little boy. And then we moved up as uh, young adults. And it was kind of cool that the family knew me as the young fat boy from Snowden is what they called me. And so I lived in a community called Snowden. She lived in a community called Hamlin. And so that's how it was allowed based off of the approval of the senior weaver. And she gave the approval. And when she gave the approval, then no one can say anything other than that. It was more like uh, basket weaving as a secret society amongst ourselves. We harvest everything, we gather everything, we weave it, we sell it ourselves. We don't use a form of e-commerce. It's all in person, but it's also kept alive within the bloodline. And I was allowed to be a basket maker because my bloodline is Gullah. Let's say, for instance, Karen would have had a boyfriend from Connecticut. He most likely would not have been a basket maker because it wasn't his true heritage. As I have heritage things in my bloodline that's kept alive, like our ways of crabbing, as we spoke of Miss Tia and how she does it, we have Gullah traditions on how we crab. That's going to be a lot different. We plant seed only on full moon. I can go on and on. We fish only on an incoming tide. These are Gullah traditions. And so they're the traditions that we're keeping alive aren't things that I learned as a basket maker. I learned these as a child coming up. This is also a big part of our heritage to make sure our next generation understands different things that were taught to that adult as they were children. And so moving forward, now I've been a basket maker now for 21 years, learned from my wife. I've actually gained my own name in the industry as a basket maker based off of my consistency of turning out a pretty decent product. I'm a very proud basket maker now that I don't choose to do much other than make baskets. And as long as God gives me the strength to pull it nice and tight, I'm more considered a contemporary basket maker. What that means is I'm making more of the decorative art flowing show pieces that you may not want to use, even though we highly, highly encourage sweetgrass baskets to be used for functional tools. 
But some of my pieces now I get into my zone and they turn out larger than life. And so some people choose not to use them for daily functional purposes, but it is still woven tightly to harvest, let's say, white potatoes. I made a piece so large, you can put watermelons in it, you know? And so basically the tools of sweetgrass basket weaving are agricultural tools for utilitarian purposes only. Doesn't matter if you're working a chicken coop, you're harvesting fruits and vegetables, or you're putting dinner rolls in them on your Sunday dinner table, they should be used for functional purposes. And we still do it that way. I'm just a little bit more of a contemporary weaver I found my own little lane, if that makes any sense. It absolutely does. And I just love your storytelling. I mean, that's really what history and culture is about, right? Especially if you're talking about an African-American culture, is that it was the stories that were passed down. And that's how we got our history and culture was orally. So I just absolutely love your storytelling and got such a wonderful picture of your family and how you came into basket weaving. Thank you so much for sharing your beautiful story with us and the traditions, the Gullah history and culture and traditions. And thank you to all of you for keeping it alive. It's so important. And Courtney Jones, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing Charleston with us. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having both of us here. We've had a blast. (laughs) So have I. So explorecharleston.com. Corey, is there a website for Sweetgrass Basket Weaving in Charleston, South Carolina? So I use different platforms of social media. You'll find me on Instagram under Corey Alston Sweetgrass or also on Facebook under Corey Alston Gullah Sweetgrass Baskets. I do have a website, but my website is just for the education purposes. It's not an e-commerce page and it's called the T-H-E com. And that's a website that I use just so people can understand my culture, my lifestyle, how to learn more about us. So it's definitely an educational website. But as far as reaching out to me by social media, also my email and phone number is public. Thanks again for having me. My pleasure. Thank both of you. Ladies and gentlemen. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information.